Hello and welcome to another episode of Naturally Curious. This is a show where I pick the brain of different cool people every episode. My name is Clayton Law, and my guest today is physics professor Rafe Shiel. How are you doing today? Good, thank you. How are you? I'm good. Let's just jump right from the beginning. Did you like science when you were a kid? I did. I liked asking questions, and for me, I think that is what science is at its core. So.、Um, I was a kid who tended to always ask the question "why," and、uh, I've always wondered why. But that applies almost as much to the natural world, which is what physics is, as to、um, what I observe around me. So I sense maybe I was always a curious, a curious kid. But you didn't know that you liked science then, when you、Correct. were a kid. Correct. So just, I was、mm-hmm. just—I、uh, was just curious about essentially everything that I observed. Um, and then through my schooling, I found that I was able to answer the questions、um, more e- easily about the physical world, and I think that's then how I became more interested in science. Why do you choose、uh, physics? Why do you like physics more than other science? So I think that physics I see as something of a foundational.、Um, Base for all the other sciences.、Um, so I also am interested in biology. In fact, I've also spent many years working in chemistry departments. My、uh, my training is, I suppose, that of a chemical physicist. So I'm a, I'm on the on the boundary or or interdisciplinary between chemistry and physics. But I think that where my natural curiosity leads me is to physics, which.、Um, Enables me then to understand both the micro and the macro of fairly simple systems, and then apply it subsequently to more complicated sort of、um, examples that you would see in chemistry or biology. When did you know you want to be a physics professor, or did you want to actually be a? You still want to be a football player or something? <laughs> Yeah, so I, well, I, I for me, I think the sport was rowing. But、um, oh yes. yes, of course, I I actually have that on my notes. <laughs> okay,、um, so yes, the I think that、um, base. What I find is that science and physics, in particular, is a subject where, when you first ask a question, it then opens up another set of questions, which are. And it sounds surprising, but even more interesting than the first question you started with. And even more,、um, and with even greater ramifications. And so then you answer that second set of questions, and that sort of gets you from sort of high school, if you say, if you sense to to maybe the first second year of university, and then you've got a third set of questions that you've opened up. So it's like one door leading into another room, leading into another room, and every time you pass into a different room, it's a richer,、um, really more intellectually elegant、um, experience. And so, in a sense, I f- fell into being a physics professor because that's a natural evolution from the first room to the second to the third. Let's move forward in time a little bit. After you have graduated in, from Oxford, yes, you went to do your PhD in Newcastle. Yep. And after that, you decided to go to Canada. Yes. Why? So, I suppose for the same reason that I moved in the first place from Oxford to Newcastle. Um, but on a larger scale, <laughs> which is that I feel that different experiences help enormously with one's learning, and so when I was at Oxford, it was a, a, a very vibrant and it's, and it's an amazingly、um, stimulating place to be, and then the the offer came for me to do graduate studies there, and I thought, well. Yeah, you know, it'd be nice to see what other experiences there are and what other environments there are. And with different environments, I think you can acquire and learn new, almost intangible、uh, skills and、um, benefits. Acquire new benefits. So I looked outside of Oxford for that, and that's then why I went to Newcastle. So my graduate work was at Newcastle. I finished that. Uh, or as as I was finishing it, I'm thinking, well, you know, I'm I'm still in、uh, to use this analogy from before. I'm still in one of these one of these、um, rather delightfully interesting rooms of 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 of, of academic、uh, 
um, um, endeavor. And so I'd like to continue in that realm. And again, I'd like to experience a different environment. I'd like to see uh, science being done in a different environment. And so I was at a conference. In fact, the conference was on Vancouver Island. Um, and there I met a professor who had just given a talk, who had um, had actually done you know some some really very interesting work, and um, saw some saw some uh, some of the delightful aspects of, of 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 atoms and molecules. And so, I, as as happens at, at academic conferences, you, know, you you just talk to the talk to the profs, you just talk to people, and um, actually there essentially uh, he offered me a job to come and work with him at Waterloo, uh, and that was in the chemistry department. So um, in laser in the field of laser chemistry, so of course there was paperwork etc. But um, that that then sort of scratched my itch to uh, to do science in yet a th- um, a different environment again. Um, wh- what did you do in Waterloo? Were you teaching or? So I was. So the 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 um, the, the position itself is called a postdoctoral research fellow, meaning that it's after the PhD, which is um, the doctoral aspect, um, but before the uh, a faculty position. So essentially, it's not dissimilar to an internship um, that you may have heard of uh, from the medical community. And what it involved is really uh, principally research, but I was fortunate to also have the opportunity to, do, to teach courses at Waterloo as well. So, um, because I was in, I'm on the border between chemistry and physics in terms of my interests and my expertise. Um, my research was laser chemistry, um, so using light to manipulate, to create, to study, investigate um, large atoms and molecules. And my teaching was really in the realm of uh, physical chemistry, so that would be in um, in, in, in in quantum chemistry and in optical. Um, optical techniques. I couldn't quite track down the timeline properly when I was researching. Did you bounce around between Waterloo and Queens? No. So I maybe maybe that link that you're alluding to there is that um, since I arrived at Trent, I have been an adjunct professor at Queens, and so uh, able to okay. supervise. And uh, some of my graduate students have. Uh, in, enrolled and, and graduated through what's called the Trent Queens program, which is a joint program, but uh, provides a the student with a Queens degree. And in order to do that, an adjunct professor um, assignment uh, is, is, is required for the supervisor. So maybe that is how the, the Queens link appeared on, the, on, on, on my webpage. Uh, so the proper timeline will be you graduated in uh, Oxford, went to Newcastle, went to Waterloo, and then you hang around there for a couple of years, then you went to Trent. Um, there's one step in the middle. So um, so Waterloo was actually a four-year position. Um, and then I'm sort of the, the next set of um, career-based uh, rooms or doors that you walk through is uh, is indeed application for, for a faculty position. Um, and so the faculty position I first got was actually back at the U- in the UK, in the University of Sussex, where for about four years again, um, I was building a research lab and conducting teaching. And after that point, then um, that was a faculty position, but a what is um, what is termed a non-tenure track faculty position. So it didn't have this it didn't have permanency associated with it. It, um, it enabled you to certainly apply for grants and get grant money, publish, to teach, to get more experience. But then it wasn't a permanent position where you could have a long-term research plan. Um, and so I moved then from Sussex to Trent. How could you have uh, gotten like a permanent faculty tenureship in Sussex? Like do you apply oh. or do they offer? So... The way the this works is that um, individual universities, and there are some something like you know sixty odd, maybe maybe more now in the UK. You know, there's there's about fifty to sixty here in Canada. So individual universities um, each year make a decision over where 
they will and in which subject field they will be hiring and so to get a faculty position requires that your expertise and your interest allies with that year's round of positions um, and so when I was uh, applying sort of towards the end of this um, non-permanent position um, I was I, I was sort of looking in various places and uh, and, 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 and certainly um, my wife at the time was very keen to come back to Canada and so we looked in Canada again and uh, Trent had that position available so I applied to Trent and they were hiring within the field of physics and they were open as to, as to which, which subfield within physics was hired so therefore in that sense it, uh, it was a, in a sense a peg and a hole problem that, that got fixed so usually I would try to understand the concept a little bit, like do some research on the whatever concept that I, I, I want to talk to the professor. But I, I just, I just can't understand quantum mechanics. A sl- even I can't even grasp a tiny bit of quantum mechanics. Like, so you got some, uh, you got some, you got some small things light years away two small things light years away and they react to each other instantaneously i read something like this and the wikipedia page was unreadable but can you just quickly just i don't like to ask professor to do this but can you dumb down a little bit of of the what quantum mechanic is so um i can certainly try um i acknowledge as 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 you've alluded to that there's often within a single sentence and of uh, of science within it within and, you know of, of scholarship in general there's a lot of information behind the scenes behind the curtains that has led to that 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 single um sentence or that single fact if if if, if you wish to use that term so um so certainly quantum mechanics has now um 100 years or so of you know, very uh, dedicated research behind it and the aspect that you're alluding to is this this rather odd sense that there is this uh, spooky um, action at a distance um, and so the question there is sort of what is that and, and what's meant by it so one of the um, remarkable aspects of, of, of quantum mechanics is that unlike a classical die that you would throw if you're playing Monopoly um, which, when you throw it, either is in a one or a two or a three or a four or five, six or a seven. When you throw it, um, small objects can expand, can 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 uh, exist in uh, what is termed um, a superposition of 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 two or more states. And so you could think of it as throwing a die, and the die happens to be both in a one and and a two, or perhaps if it's a coin, it's both a heads and a tails. And so when you come to measure that, when you say, hey, what is the value on that die? Or when you say, what was the uh, face on that coin? Um, then that uh, superposition, or um, you could call it a mixture, collapses to one of those, uh, one, one, one of the possible um, answers. So a nice example might actually be socks. If I was to think of a sock that I pull out my drawer, it's typically either red or green or blue or black, right? Because I've got some colorful socks. Now, at a small scale, particles can exist as if they are a sock that is both red and green. So that means then that it's in this mixture of red and green. Now, if I have, if I pull two socks out my drawer, and I do it in such a way that I know one of them's red and one of them's green. Uh, actually, I'll rephrase that. If I pull two socks out my drawer and I just happen to know that um, of the two, there's a red sock and a green sock, it's possible for both of them to be in this mixture of red and green. You to take both those socks, separate them by light years, and then look at them, and only then look at them. And so until you look at them, the socks are both in a mixture of red and green. But the minute or second that you look at one of the socks and you say, wow, look, it's red, then the other sock instantly must be green. 
and this is a term called entanglement in science. It has a lot of powerful ramifications. It not only um, is the science behind why atoms and molecules behave the way they do, why the periodic table is the way it is, but it's also um, enables fields such as quantum computing and quantum processing to become to become realized. So now I'll try and cut then to the explanatory sentence that you were looking for five minutes ago. And what I would say then is that I I think what you are uh, what, what what you are uh, curiously uh, in uh, asking about is the sense, the very real and observed sense, that if you take two particles that have a common history and are therefore the term is entangled, it is quite remarkable that you can take one of them to one side of the universe and the other one to the other side of the universe and then and only then measure which state or which property one of them is in and the other one, even though it's many, many light years away, will instantly have the other, if you like, the complementary property. So in, in the sock analogy, perhaps, um, I pull two socks out my drawer. I don't look at them. One of them I put in a box. One of the other one I put in a box. I send each of those boxes to the far side of the universe. And then when I open one of the boxes, the first one is green. And that means to say I can guarantee that the other one will be opened and the other sock will be red. Um, how, how, is, uh, how is Schrodinger's cat? I can see some similarity between the socks example and Schrodinger's cat, but uh, Schrodinger's cat just doesn't feel very understandable. Yes, yeah, so I suppose at its core is the sense that particles can be waves, uh, i.e. exhibit wave-like properties. And so it's possible then to have properties that are not uniquely set. So Schrodinger's cat is the analogy, and Schrodinger, I don't even know if he had a cat, but he used this as what's called a Gedanken or thought experiment. Um, he said, you know, let's pretend that our electron is this thing called a cat, is this cat, and um, I'll put it in a box, and I'm going to create the option that the cat could be 50% chance it's alive and 50% chance that it's dead. And he sort of thought about that by saying, well, let's put a little bit of radioactivity into the box too that might make a vial of poison be released if, it, if, 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 if the nucleus decays uh, radioactively and then the cat uh, happens to die. Now, he never did this with a cat. This is purely a thought experiment. So the cat itself is in a, you can use the term mixture. It actually has a slightly different meaning in, in, in physics. So officially the term would be superposition. But... Um, Let's use the term mixture for now. So the cat is in a mixture of being alive and dead in this model. That is analogous to the sock that is in a mixture of being red and green. So it is both red and green um, with a 50% likelihood of each. When you look at it, you then observe either a red sock or a green sock. And that is really the um, the foundation of much of the philosophy, or the, the questions that stem from that, are, are the foundation of the philosophy of quantum mechanics, and what is what what is real, and what is what is what what what, what is realism, and so what we see to bring back the analogy to the rooms that I that I spoke about earlier, is that by talking about the states that that, that quantum systems can be in, we've now entered really one of two rooms, one of which is philosophically saying, okay, that seems weird. Why is that true? And what is what, what is reality? And in a second room, which is, wow, that seems weird. What can we do with it? And can we check that it is indeed the what we observe from the world? The first of those rooms really enters into a field called uh, physics of, uh, or, or the philosophy of physics. And the second is really what physicists spend a lot of their time doing, which is acknowledging the the unusual um, non-intuitive aspect of quantum mechanics, but then using it and applying it. So um, again, each room leads to another room. And so what we tend to do as physicists is recognize that that, that atoms, molecules, electrons, you know, um, basically small proteins act like this. 
and then we try to use that um, for 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 the for a, for beneficial means. Um, but it does also on it on the side we recognize that you know there's a big room called well what is realism, and I think Richard Feynman was 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 I mean he he was a Nobel laureate from uh, you know a, a, a very accomplished physicist um, in the twentieth century. And essentially, he said that he feels that nobody truly understands quantum mechanics, and he was an expert in quantum mechanics. So um, what I think he's alluding to there is that uh, your question is a very well-posed question. Um, it opens up many, many subsidiary uh, lines of inquiry, and we don't we always end up with more questions than we do answers. And as a as a as 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 a scholar, the question or uh, that one has to ask oneself is: Okay, at what point do I? Um, what which area am I going to do research in? Which area am I going to focus in? Recognizing that, that there's a lot of um, uncharted territory that remains. Another one of your what, well, like you mentioned earlier, one of your research interests is in laser. So, it seems like. The 2018 Nobel Prize, uh, Nobel Physics Prize, the thing that they were doing is right up your alley. Yes, in fact, um, so um, the the award, um, at least uh, a, a substantial fraction of the award for the Physics Nobel Prize uh, in 2018 was for a, f a technique called chirped pulse amplification. Um, awarded to Ger uh, Donna Strickland at Waterloo and Gerhard Muru uh, at Rochester. Um, um, so, uh, I mean, uh, and uh, he may have been, and well, um, they may have been in Michigan as well. So I, 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 I may have the actual um, affiliation uh, incorrect there. But uh, Donna Strickland indeed um, is a remarkable physicist uh, at the University of Waterloo, and I overlapped with her when I was there. Um, and so it, this was her, her graduate work in the mid-80s where the technique was really quite a, a clever one of uh, trying to increase the power of lasers' pulses without destroying um, the laser itself as you pump more and more and more power into the laser, uh, in, into the laser light. So chirped pulse amplification is a technique effectively to do that. So it sounds like it is. I'm sure it is not simple, the the work behind it. But it is. I intuitively understand what it means. So it's. Is it more uh, compared to other Nobel Prize, Nobel like Physics Prize? Is it more one more like a simpler thing that that was awarded? The answer I think is that um, um, the challenge is in this particular case actually getting the experiment to work and what your what your question i think gets to the to the root of uh, which is a, a very good one is that there are different challenges with every field supplies within academia as well as uh, as as well as my observations within physics and uh, the natural sciences um so the challenge often with uh, an ex with experimental work, which this absolutely is, is um, perhaps uh, articulated best as thinking of juggling, where the task is um, first that, like all research, you don't know it's going to work. So you have a hypothesis that you think, well, um, if we do this, and we do this, and this happens, and we do this, and we do this step here, then, wow, we might get this really powerful laser beam, for example. Um, but it may not happen. So all research is essentially a leap into the unknown. And so what it involves then is um, a lot of understanding of everything that's gone before you, the technical aspects, what type of crystals, in this case, uh, the laser crystals um, that are used by, uh, by, uh, by Donna Strickland and Gerhard Moreau, um, all the optics, which means all the lenses, all the, uh, the attributes of the light, the way in which its wavelength, its intensity, its polarization, which is a, another property that 
that light can have, um, all have to be aligned in such a way. Uh, in the same sense, I suppose, as you'd say, that the stars have to align for this for an, op for, for an experiment to work. Um, but in this case, it, they all have to be engineered to be aligned. So I would say that the, um, I mean, this chirp pulse amplification technique is definitely deserving of a Nobel Prize. Um, it can be perhaps described with a diagram in a way that's more intuitive to us. But the challenge of getting it to work is um, as great um, and deserving of a Nobel Prize as all the others. And to just to circle back to the juggler analogy, essentially it requires for the first time, you know, in, in or it required in the mid 80s for the first time in history for the, these, these two researchers to, to enable ball number one to be in the air. So the intensity is the correct value, while ball number two is in the air, the polarization is the correct value, while ball number three is in the air, the crystals have the right temperature, while ball number four is in the air, um, you know, the current through the various uh, power supplies are what they have to be, etc., etc. And um, if any one of those balls falls and down onto the ground, then the experiment cannot work. Would you get a laser surgery? Would I or get just, laser surgery? Just so the audience know, Rave wear glasses. Right. Yes. Uh, yes. I. I. I am indeed uh, quite nearsighted, um, as an increasing number of people are, um, uh, as 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 time progresses. Um, so, so um, I actually have fairly thin corneas, and so it's not appropriate for uh, reshaping the cornea, which is what laser surgery actually involves. Um, so laser surgery has various types. Um, um, one that you may have heard of is, is, is LASIK. Another one is PRK and they have different uh, approaches, but, um, in all, in all cases it involves, uh, reshaping the cornea, which is the very front of your eye. Uh, it's the transparent window that holds, um, all the fluid inside the eye and maintains the eyes, um, spherical shape while allowing light to travel into the eye. Um, and so reshaping involves removing some of that cornea, just sort of basically uh, scraping away, but thankfully not with any sandpaper or anything, but in fact just using indeed uh, laser laser light and chirp pulse amplification, which we've just been speaking about, is, is indeed used to ensure that the laser has sufficient power in a very small amount of time that it can take away, it can ablate is the term, some material from the cornea without actually, um, you know, uh, without causing widespread damage. So um, so it, it, it targets the cornea. But the cornea has to be thick enough for that material to be removed. So you can't do it. So that's correct. Yes. Ah. Uh, when I was a kid, I used to think that I'm, I'm someone special because I had a lot of deja vu and I didn't know how to explain it to my parents. So I just kind of like... So I just kind of didn't say anything and just thought like, I must have superpower. And turns out everybody have deja vu. And then there's another thing that makes, also makes me think that I'm someone special is I have after image. But turns out everybody, everybody has after image. When I, when I used to do as a kid is that I would close my eyes and I will press on my eyelid. And then there are like weird patterns will show up in my, like I would see weird patterns. What does that, how, do, how that happens? So the eye is a fascinating um, object because it connects physics to biology um, through many paths. And um, so it is, um, so perception, visual, visual perception itself is truly an interdisciplinary subject. Um, so the, the, uh, the after image that you that you referred to um, where for example you stare at an object for a while and an example might be um, a, a fairly colorful object perhaps you know that a fairly simple colorful object perhaps a, a very simple flag um, that's colorful um, and you stare at that flag for a while for 20 seconds or so and then when you look at a blank sheet of paper um, what you what you'd see is on the paper, it's faint, but you do typically see this, is you would see um, the complementary colors of that flag. So I suppose if, for example, you have the Swedish flag, which is blue and yellow, for example, with a, um, um, then what you would see is where there was the blue, you'd see 
some 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 brightish yellow um, on the white uh, sheet of paper that you're looking at. So that's an example um, of a, what's called a negative afterimage. So um, there you've actually got the latency or the um, the cones, which are which are receptors in the retina, um, have have essentially been triggered in such a way that when you then close your eyes, or what rather, when you then look away at a white sheet of paper, um, um, the, the nerve impulses from the retina still continue to fire in such a way that, that there's this impression that, that, that the colors have changed. Now, that's really a, it's a neurological phenomenon. In other words, it's to do with the, with the cells and the nerves. Um, and so, um, I imagine, but I don't know, that uh, the pushing on your eyes, which probably wouldn't be broadly recommended, um, can can indeed have the same um, effect. Um, ac um, and in fact, you aren't alone in, 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 in trying to push your eyes. But I, again, I wouldn't recommend it. I mean, Newton once uh, tried to sort of push his eyes so much that he almost caused himself uh, to go blind. Um, so um, so I think you want to yeah, be careful. And part of science is thinking before you touch anything. I don't, I don't do that anymore. Yeah, I was yeah. just a kid that just when I couldn't sleep, I just like, oh, let's try for fun. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th the body has a degree of resilience, which is great. But uh, but as, um, as an experimental scientist, I do I do teach um, my students very much that uh, before you engage in a particular task, you think about it um, to make sure that that's, uh, it's uh, highly probable that everything will be okay. <laughs> so the, the the pressing like the thing that I said like press on my eyes and uh, and I see a weird pattern that is not after image that's something no else. that's correct that's that's not an after image exactly okay. that's right but uh, but you would to explain that would require. Um, uh, unpacking whether so I, I i don't know if this is with your eyes open or with, no, with your I'll, eyes closed I'll that's right with your eyes closed lid. that's right so um so at some level there's a stimulation of the of 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 the nerves that that then get the impression that you're getting some some signal to your eyes uh, when you do blink, of course, there's, I mean, you know, there's no, or when you have your eyes closed, there's no light entering the retina, uh, you know, hit, hitting the retina. Um, so to see anything when you're doing that is, um, it could be packaged as a neurological thing, a, a neurological phenomenon. And so that would require um, unpacking that part of, of, of vision. Um, the latency of your eye actually is partly, I mean, we're thankful about it because every time you blink, you don't suddenly see um, blackness. You know, when you look around, when you when when I ask you to admire a painting, for example, at an art gallery, you know, you might be looking at this painting for thirty seconds and saying, "Wow, it's really a, quite a beautiful painting." And at no point do you say to me, "Well, it would have been really good if it didn't constantly go black every time <laughs> that I blinked." And so there is an example where the latency of the cones and uh, of your eye, and also your brain, which actually connects to the to the eye in such a way that it that it de-emphasizes signals that come when you blink um, together work in such a way that you don't notice blinking so you have to try to notice your blinking i'm noticing now because you were talking about it so yeah you can't count how many times i've blinked unless you try to count exactly exactly that's right yes uh so there's one camera that was i don't know invented that could film 10 trillion frames per second. So it can actually film light traveling frame by frame. What does that mean for studying light? So um, in the same way, actually, that uh, perhaps an, a, a nice analogy that, that, that ties in with uh, the origin, origin, origin of phot photography is that there was a big debate for many uh, in the mid I'm going to guess mid-19th mid century, um, as to how horses actually ran. Because we can see, you know, we can see horses walking and we can visualize as humans, we can see their legs as they walk. But there was a debate over how horses ran, whether they run with two legs stretch, re reaching out in front of them and two legs back at the same time, or if they run uh, in a different, with a, with a different gait. So the 
way to that that was actually resolved was through a camera um, because they simply horses move too fast for us as humans to be able to see partly due to this the latency effect of the of the retina um, move too fast their legs move too fast for us to actually determine how it was that they were running um, so essentially cameras have uh, cameras have achieved a lot in terms of finding out, in terms of information gathering, in terms of understanding nature. And so, uh, of course, a horse travels, you know, I'm going to sort of estimate maybe about you know, maybe 40 kilometers uh, an hour, maybe 50 kilometers an hour, that type of speed. And light travels, um, well, uh, 300 million um, kilometers. Uh, well, meters per second, but still, it's it's m many, many, many thousands of you know, of times faster than a horse, um, and so, I mean, essentially, in a foot, um, they've travelled a foot uh, in 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 a billionth of a second. Um, so, so therefore, what we learn by slowing things down frame by frame um, can help us, can inform us about how light. Uh, interacts with materials. So as it passes through glass, what actually happens to that glass? Um, how much does the glass distort, for example? How much? Uh, how does the light beam actually? How do, how how does the light beam or light pulse in this case behave as it as it as it starts to reflect off that glass? Um, and glass itself is a fairly um, inert material. But I mean, I'm reminded of Michael Faraday's reply when he was asked. You know, when I mean, this may be an apocryphal story, but I think the message is a good one. When he was asked by by the King of England, "Well, you've you've discovered this thing called electricity, but what use is it?" and his reply was, "I do not know, sire, but what use is a newborn baby?" And uh, in the same sense, I think a lot of science has progressed in and what we have what we have today, which is remarkable levels of of, of technology, uh, information, and predictions, based upon. Um, taking a new tool and applying it and letting nature almost be the guide. So um, with a camera that can image light frame by frame as it passes you know, um, across the room, as it, as it connects, as it, as it reflects, as it, as it interacts with glass, but not just glass, maybe with cells, maybe with uh, tendons, maybe with biological materials, um, um, then who knows where it can lead? Um, but essentially, um, you know, almost every major advance in science has taken place because of um, open-minded playing. There's a question that I want to ask, but I don't know who to ask, but I feel like you can probably answer this question. So ever since I have the understanding of how energy is generated, like I un ever since I understand why people burn fossil fuel how that generate energy how wind turbine works i have the idea that that we should harness the power generated from an earthquake is it let's ignore the engineering part is it theoretically possible to harness power from an earthquake so i think so I think it's entirely theoretically possible, and you are right that uh, any application, um, any human application requires both a scientific foundation plus the technical and technological um, expertise um, and development. So um, it is perfectly possible to store um, energy um, from from vibrations from um from even from from sound and um an earthquake has as you say a significant amount of energy associated with it um and so in the same sense that tidal energy can be stored then it is theoretically possible there's no nothing um preventing us imagining a scenario under which um that happens to be in an earthquake. Um, we we have some. F we have generators, basically vibration-based generators, and they store this store this energy. Um, ultimately, one of the, I think, one of the really powerful and and beautiful and elegant aspects of science is that, for it to work, it requires um, 
an understanding of the micro and the macro. And so um, there's the theoretical principle, and then there's the the theory of the experiment. In other words, okay, so now when I put in real wires and real generators and I place them at real places, of course, we don't know, we can't predict yet. One of the advances that, that, that I'm looking forward to is being able to predict, you know, for is, is for us as humans to be able to predict earthquakes much more reliably. Um, but when we, you know, when, when you fold all those, all those facts into the problem, um, does it become a viable option is then a very uh, um, an important but different question um, and so at the moment I, I, I sense that the uh, that the unpredictability is such that we wouldn't be pursuing that as an avenue for for for, for uh, energy generation um, geothermal of course which uses the the um, you know the the sort of the um, latent heat um, you know, the, 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 the the embedded heat um, within the earth's crust um, is a is is a technology that is uh, being rolled out at the moment. Are are you good with uh, periodic table? I see you have a periodic table over there. There is a periodic table yeah, <laughs> yeah, <but laughs> behind me. Yep. How do you pronounce the element with atomic number thirteen? Um, so, um, yes. Yeah, so uh, aluminum is uh, how I now pronounce it. Aluminium is how uh, it used to be pronounced in Britain and still is by people. Um, who have uh, not yet encapsulated the new, the, the 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 spelling that is now uniform, which is aluminum. So the spelling is now does not have the extra i. Um, that and I can't recall precisely when that happened, but I'm going to estimate maybe about 20 years ago. Um, and actually, a similar um, anecdote would be the element sulfur, which uh, for a long time in in Britain and and other places was spelt with p h s u l p h u r, but indeed you know we need to have some standardization in order to effectively communicate, and so it was subsequently determined that it would be spelt with an f uh, s u l f u r, and so and there are st- some people that you know just out of habit still use use the p h, and so likewise with aluminium. I'm fairly sure that it is now officially spelt without the extra I that would give it that phonetic sound. Um, and so aluminum is indeed a, a, a the way that I spell it, both or pronounce it rather, both because I'm I'm in North America and because I believe that is what UPAC, which is the, the, the committee um, that determines these things, has decided and it's as, it's it's certainly functional. When was the sulfur thing changed? When was that? So that I th- that I w- uh, I don't recall, but I uh, because uh, I don't I mean, there's a there's a there there are of course countless uh, pieces pieces of trivia in any subject. Um, but um, I imagine again it was around twenty years ago. But it could be. I mean, you could you could fi- you could find out. Because I just I, I never noticed that it used to be pH. I just I just know it's spelled with an F. That's right. So and it must be before. Well, it was either before your time or it was subsequently to you studying it but here it always was f and in many other and in some other countries for example in the uk it was ph i mean last week for example the kilogram was redefined in a particular way and um you may not have encountered that um just because uh it doesn't affect you sort of in in your everyday life Mm -hmm. yeah like one kilogram of things is still going to be one kilogram, like f- for me. Exactly. Like yes, when yeah, I go yeah, get groceries. Right. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yes. To to any to any level of accuracy that you measure it, it will indeed stay the same. Of course, I mean the GPS system that we use in our satellites requires the second to be very very precisely defined, um, even though the second hasn't changed to you and I. Um, from its sort of definition in 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 in, in antiquity, um, that doesn't mean to say that by changing these things we can't enable more technologies. So I have an, I have this one little argument with it's not really an argument discussion with my friends. It's about is water wet? From a from a physicist perspective, is water wet? Um. So. There, I so in essence, I would 
say that it depends upon what 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 uh, substance you're putting it on. What what water is is conglomeration of H2O molecules, which through their interactions, which mean the way that the electrons behave inside those molecules, um, enable these molecules to attract and stick to some other substances. Uh, the term, I suppose, we could use is uh, hydrophobic for those substances that, that, that it sticks to. So your hair, the, when you come out the shower, as an example, where water sticks to your hair, it doesn't dry. You know, y your hair takes time to dry. Um, the term that, that we use for that particular form of connecting from, one, from water to your substance is uh, hydrogen bonding. Um, so water certainly seems wet to your hair in the sense that um, um, you, you put it on your hair and it, it sort of doesn't, you know, and, and it, doesn't, uh, it, it doesn't just evaporate away. Um, but there are other substances um, that it doesn't stick to as, uh, as much. So it hinges upon, and this is why I think at its core, it's, you need to, we need to be able to understand the small and the large scale. Um, it hinges upon the way the electrons in the more water molecule behave when they encounter the electrons in, for example, Teflon or, for example, your hair. Um, so whether water is wet or not, uh, I would say, and I'm not a, I'm not a, a fluid um, scientist, um, but what I would say is I, I, my interpretation of, that, of answering that question would be it depends what, uh, what material you're, uh, you're considering. Okay. I will, I'm sure I will ask this question again sure. to other, uh, like maybe philosophers, like, is water wet in philosophy? Oh, yeah, I'll, I'm sure I will probably Absolutely. ask. <laughs> um, sometimes when I can fall asleep, uh, I think of things. One of the things that I think about is, like, I get frustrated to think that my physical body can only do so much. It's like I can never experience fourth dimensional space. I can never see past red and violet. And I can never travel faster in speed of light. That kind of thing. I'm sure you have encountered things that are very abstract that, that you, you physically cannot experience. Do you get frustrated because of it? Sometimes, maybe? Um, that's a Yes, an intriguing question. Um, I think, so one answer that I have to that question would be that ultimately the world in which we live, and by that I, I mean also the, the, you know, the, the universe in which we live, it, it remarkably, and there's no reason this has to be true and this now enters into philosophy of science, but remarkably it, has a, it obeys a very consistent set of rules. So... One answer to your question is the, the, the limitations that your body has are a reassuring confirmation that the universe obeys a consistent set of you know, axioms or rules or, 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 or base principles. So if it was the case that suddenly, you know, one person could sort of break the rules of science, um, it certainly would at first be quite exciting, but then it would also mean that it actually, maybe there isn't a whole set of rules applying to the universe, and therefore um, basically all bets are all, would be off for any prediction made from that point onwards. Will the sun rise tomorrow? We don't know. Uh, would the earth be rotating in five minutes' time? We don't know. So... Um, one answer to your to 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 allay a concern about limitations would be well, isn't nature quite powerful and um, quite influential that it sets the rules, not you? <laughs> so you may wish that you could jump to the top of a fortieth story building, but science won't let you. And if you could, then all bets would be off for from that point forward, uh, for good or for ill. So I think my first answer would be actually it can be kind of reassuring that at least there's this there's this consistent set of principles that that the universe follows, um, and that includes, for example, your eye having 
a particular material in front of it, the cornea, which then limits the amount of light that can get through in such a way that you can't see beyond red and you can't see beyond violet. Um, um, and, so, and then sometimes there are some interesting stories. For example, there's an astronomer in Nova Scotia who has um, lens removed from his eye, and actually that now means that uh, he, can, he can actually see um, a little bit more into the violet, a little bit more into the ultraviolet than you and I can. But in general, the limitations that we have as a human body are entirely consistent with the principles that the universe is following. Um, of course, part of technology and what we do with technology then is to try to sort of push the boundaries of that and to do that in a beneficial way. And just like sometimes, like some animal can see more than what we can see. Mm-hmm. It just, I think of that like, they're seeing things that I can never see. Yes. And it just sometimes, if I, I obviously, I don't go around and thinking like, oh, I'm so frustrated because I can't. But like sometimes I think that it is so frustrating that I some of the things I just can never, ever, ever do. Yes. And of course, they also would be feeling, if you were to anthropomorphize them, that they regret that you can do so many things that they cannot do. Um, so I think there's there's always um, going to be a trade-off in any consistent set, any consistent schema. And science is, is, is and really the universe in which we live, it's a schema. So um, there is going to be a trade-off that necessarily happens with, you know, you can, you can do A, but you can't do B. If you could do B, then you might not be able to do A. Yeah, I guess I I guess it's uh I should maybe change the perspective and think like huh, it is reassuring that that everything is consistent and nothing freaky is going to happen out of nowhere. I th- I think there's a deg- I think that is certainly consistent with what we so that that is what uh, history sort of does show us and um it can I think, and this is why I think physics and philosophy often are sort of be- their bedfellows in a sense, um, is that um, I think it does give you, it can give people some some solace that there's, you know, that that we have the universe. We still don't understand all its rules um, or its principles, but um, it does operate in somewhat of a re- in in really a reliable way. I mean, one of the things we encounter in astronomy is, as you know, is 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 that we can make predictions of the planets incredibly far into the future. I mean, the next time Venus is going to pass in front of the sun in what's called a transit of Venus in a way that we actually observe Venus passing directly in front of the sun is not for another 100 years, but it's happened to be known to be on something like December the 20th, um, you know, in sort of 97 years' time. <laughs> that type of prediction is quite remarkable. Um, and you know, thus far, predictions have proven to be correct. So we have no reason to think that one won't be. And, you know, fast forward 97 years or, or, or the precise day that it is. And uh, it gives you, I think it gives us as humans a degree of humility that perhaps we aren't the people setting the rules in the universe, um, but also a degree of confidence that we can then work within the principles that are set by the universe. So there's one great video on YouTube that's called Map of Physics, and the person just laid out what different category of physics, that kind of thing. And then one thing he points out at the end is we still there are way more things that we don't know than we know and that's one thing called dark matter that makes up 85 percent of the universe so what we're what we're doing right now is understanding of 15 percent of the universe so this is another thing that i'm again i don't walk around thinking like we know so little it's just sometimes when i'm by myself can't fall asleep i think like we don't know a lot at all. We there are way more we don't know than we do know. It's just um, does it again like does it frustrate you or does it, does it feel like does it make you feel like so? Uh, I think of it maybe to connect both to the the the, the different rooms that I discussed at the beginning. Um, I find it beautifully rich, beautifully elegant, 
that there is so much that we don't know. But I, I recognize that one can, can have a view, well, gosh, there's so much we don't know, this is a problem. Um, there's a wonderful talk by a neuroscientist by the name of Stuart Feierstein from Columbia University in which I think it's, I think it's entitled In Pursuit of Ignorance. And he, he was giving lectures to his first year um, biology students uh, concentrating on the brain and um, he recognized that there was this perception that people, that his students felt that basically scientists find out a piece of information, then they throw it into a textbook, and then it's taught to the students, and the next scientist finds out another piece of information, sticks it in the textbook, the textbook gets bigger and bigger and bigger. In fact, I think he made the, the point that the textbook weighed as much as two human brains. Um, and, uh, then he rec and then he developed a course to really convey that, that the more that you know, the less that you know, but that that isn't a cause for concern, that's a cause really for empowerment because behind every great advance in science is pursuing more and more ignorance, i.e. pursuing more things that you, more questions that you can ask. So if you picture someone who has no training in a subject, they could ask, you know, and you ask them to think of questions. Of course, they can think of a large number of questions, but if you then ask somebody um, who has training in a subject about about that subject to think of questions, they will think of many, many innumerable more questions. Um, so the search for so the an acceptance of ignorance is a crucial part, I think, of being a scholar, because the more that you find out about any topic then the more interesting it is because it's got so many more faces now, so many more areas of study that you can investigate. So, for example, you could say, okay, I'm sort of curious about how my eyeball works, and that's a perfectly good question to start with. And then you can say, okay, so what, what forms this, this eyeball? And you can sort of say, well, it's got this window at the front called the cornea, fine. It's got this thing called lens, fine. It's got this retina at the back, okay? And then you start saying, well, so, so what's, the, what's the cornea made of? And you'd say, well, you know, it's made of the same stuff that your tendons are made of. And you'd say, but that's odd because the tendons that I have in my body, and I've seen tendons when I go to the butchers or whatever, and I, I can picture my Achilles tendon. I can't see through my Achilles tendon. So why is it that I can see through my cornea, this window in front of the eye, when I can't see through my Achilles tendon, I mean, you know, and if I took a, my Achilles tendon and split it in half, it would still just look like wax paper. I couldn't see through it. And so, in essence, we've started by saying, okay, how does the eye work? And very quickly, we're in really quite an interesting question, which is, you know, why is it that the, the collagen that makes up your eye, your cornea, and the collagen that makes up your tendon are so differently arranged in such a way that one of them lets this beautiful amount of light, as you said, from blue through to red, you know, v uh, from red through to violet, if you like, um, through to through your eye, and any of your other tendons in your body doesn't do that at all. So that's just one question that probably you wouldn't have asked had you not even entered that subject to start with. So um, again, uh, you know, sort of playing the, the, the connection, the bedfellow connection between, uh, between investigative science and um, the, the, the philosophical questions of humanity. Um, it, it, I acknowledge that we could conclude, wow, there's so much we don't know. I'm kind of going to give up. Um, I think it's both more, there's more solace and more utility in embracing that ignorance, and this talk by Stuart Feierstein makes it um, makes it uh, make, makes a good argument for this, um, and he indeed teaches a course on ignorance um, at Columbia. And so, the art of the not knowing is as enthralling, as exciting, and as powerful um, as really any scholarly pursuit. This is me when I'm editing this episode. After Rave's response, it took me a few moments to digest it, and listening back, it sounded very awkward, so I'm just going to skip ahead to when I asked him the next question.
why do you like rowing? Oh, um, yeah, peace, I think. It's, it, 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 it gives a remarkable sense of peace. Um, it's, um, it connects with many senses. So um, when, when you're rowing, you have often a stillness on the water, um, occasionally punctuated by hearing the oars sort of go into the water. And so it has a certain, um, the, the water being wet uh, question connects to the fact, I think that we've, uh, we as humans have been, uh, you know, we're very familiar with water. Um, and so, and it, it provides fresh air. And so you have the, the sensory smell of 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 being in on a you know a beautiful a beautiful river or a canal as as we are here at Trent, um, and it's a pursuit of um, getting uh, of improvement. In other words, it gives the uh, every t everybody is um, every, every rower is essentially searching for that perfect stroke, and we never get that perfect stroke, and that's okay because every the the journey is so much is so satisfying itself. Um, it gives tangible benefits as you improve. You you know it becomes easier and 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 easier to row. In that sense, perhaps it's similar to physics. That I think physics is probably most difficult at the high school level because there's so much that you aren't able to connect the dots. It's 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 it's, it's a puzzle that uh, you're very limited in placing pieces together. And as you become more accomplished in physics, it actually becomes easier to conduct that um, uh, con 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 conduct that enterprise. And rowing, I think, is is similar. That when you first get in a boat, it's quite it's very narrow. You, you you fall to the left, it falls to the right, and it certainly isn't very comfortable. And after some time, you know, whether it's the 10,000 hours that we that we hear about or, or, or just a certain number of, um, you know, months of training, um, it becomes much more a pleasant experience. And so I think the reward, the reward comes with the pursuit. Do you have a favorite scientist? Um, you can name two if it's too hard for you. So I suppose... Um, I mean, there are there 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 are of course many uh, uh, luminaries who who I who I admire. Um, I wouldn't say that I have heroes. I don't maybe think that a hero. I mean, there's a quote: "You should never meet your heroes." And um, I think part of science is, of course, taking the knowledge of that that's gone before you and pushing it forward and continuing that 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 discovery. And so that doesn't necessarily. And so I think a. I think a scientist needs to be open-minded to the extent that um, all the rules may change. It, you know, we, we need to allow for rules changing or the principles changing. And so in that sense, um, I would say that um, I have um, remarkable respect for, for many luminaries before me. I mean, um, to, I could name many of them uh, sort of in a in a word association test perhaps um i mean J james clark maxwell was was a remarkable scientist um who connected many areas of physics together um, um i would say that um i mean you know uh, New newton was remarkable in just his 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 ability to appreciate experiment as well as as well as theory i would say that um i mean marie curie was remarkable in just sort of uh, you know determining um, radioactivity, and I mean even in fact even Florence Nightingale was a statistician. Or I don't know if you're familiar with her. She's a nurse who worked a lot in in uh, in the Crimean War, um, but was able to argue why it is that various hospitals needed to have improved sanitation, and did so in very much a, an uh, experimental scientific way by presenting data in this way. Um, so there's a, there's a, yeah, I mean, there's a, you know, Newton used the line that he stands on the shoulders of giants. And I think there are many luminary giants that have gone before me and, uh, they're all part of the set, part of the team. And, and I think that that's humbling, but remarkably able to be appreciated is, 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 is the people that are part of the team. Anything you want to talk about? Um, they, I could 
talk for hours as yeah, you can course, tell yeah. i think so i'm sorry if i'm Anything overstaying my welcome no um, no, no. <laughs> no no it's, it's great so um no i mean you know there's i mean i i mean i think i think that um the pursuit of of scholarship of uh that comes from teaching and from research um asking questions is what i would encourage all all students to do um you know, I, 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 at the beginning of the interview or just before the interview, you, you alluded to the fact that on my webpage I give a quote from Rabbi, who was a physicist um, in the 20, early 20th century, who um, you know, made the comment that his parents sent him to school and didn't say, hey, what did you learn at school today when he returned, but instead said, hey, what interesting question did you think of today? And uh, I think that's really the the crux of of, of m much of human progress is just asking questions, and that's why I appreciate this uh, this you know the questions you've been putting to me in this interview. Thank you. So that does it for this episode. Thank you very much, Rave, for joining me today. Thank you, Clayton.